Welcome to Spotlight. I'm Rod James, a reporter with Secondaries Investor. Last month, we invited three lawyers to our London office to discuss stapled secondaries deals. Partners Kate Simpson of Proskauer, John Reif of Debevoise and Plimpton, and Saloni Joshi of MJ Hudson gave their views on how the market for stapled deals has evolved, the right way to treat fairness opinions, and how best to avoid conflicts of interest. A staple transaction, in the context of this conversation, means a buyer acquiring stakes in the GP's fund and simultaneously committing to that manager's fund and market. The past few years have seen them employed by a number of well-known names, such as Providence Equity Partners and BC Partners. We start with Simpson, who notes that staple deals have grown strongly in popularity after a steep drop-off in the wake of the financial crisis. I think there are more GPs that, that want to do it. I mean, it's like the secondary market generally. It sort of used to feel a bit like, you know, the love that dare not speak its name. You know, no one wanted to talk about it because they're all slightly ashamed of it. It was the refuge of the stressed and distressed. And the secondary market has evolved so far away from that. It's now a inbuilt part of most people's private fund investment strategy. And I think as the secondary market itself then has evolved to bring in this sort of structured deals that John was talking about, then these sorts of elements become more just part of the more sort of mature market that exists. Hot pricing has certainly helped, Reif says. Well, and, and also, I mean, we've seen so much money raised by secondaries funds over the last few years. And I think part of what that has resulted in is much higher pricing for LP interest. And so I think it's easier for a GP to take seriously the, the option of running a stapled secondary with a tender offer, for example, for a prior fund, where the secondary's buyer is paying NAV or some premium to NAV. It, I think that removes a lot of stigma from these transactions from an LP's perspective, where I think LPs are, are more lukewarm on them, where they are being asked to take a discount to the value that's in the ground, and the sponsor in the mean, at the same time is securing an additional commitment to a new fund that they're raising. Yeah, and I think you've touched on a good point because obviously, you know, from a, an LP's perspective, it's all about pricing. And, you know, if they are selling a, a discount, um, that's clearly not going to be favourable. Clearly, they don't want some kind of a premium. And the question is, well, where is the premium? What, what's it going to be? And then comes the issue of where there is a conflict situation where you've got a GP who's leading a restructuring. Um, and, you know, Certainly from our perspective, I, we always take the view that you've got to disclose. You've got to d make clear disclosures. Um, whether or not you go down the route of a fairness opinion or not in terms of pricing, but LPs want to know fundamentally that the price that they're getting is fair. And perhaps more importantly, um, it serves to then sort of reinforce that relationship because that you've got to remember that they're still in a relationship with their general partner. General partner has fiduciary duties, conflict issues there too. Um, but these are all about long-term relationships with your general partner, so they are very fundamentally based on trust. It's hard to argue that pricing is what it's all about. No surprise, then, that we've seen an increase in the use of fairness opinions. In particular with respect to tender offers, where you've got you know, a stapled is hardwired into the documentation, um, investors are asking for fairness opinions in terms of the price that they're being offered, because that is fundamental to their decision. Um, Quite clearly, if there is a primary component to a transaction that is going to dilute the price that they're getting, 
Um, the only way around that for a general partner is to disclose it and to, to be absolutely open about it um, and then allow investors the option to make their own assessment and make their own decision. I think fairness opinions are helpful because they're protective for the GP. You know, they've gone out and they've, they've tested. Also running a process is protective. If you've gone out and you've you say, used an intermediary and they've um, price tested and said this is the basis on which four different people are prepared to do this deal, you have a sort of sense of, well, that's the price. I mean, the price is only the price, and they're privately held assets. There's not a lot of ways to test it. Um, and so, you know, all those things are helpful in just giving assurance to the investors that they're getting value um, and also protection to the GP that they, you know, they have done what they can to be, as Sonny as says, disclose, disclose, disclose. They've, they've told people, they've told people if there's a staple, they've told people that they're crystallizing carried interest on the deal. You know, it's about being open and it's about being open early and it's about getting your key investors on board early getting your advisory board on early uh, on board early because once you you have to get that groundswell because these are you know execution risk transactions because of the sort of the conflict nature of them and the uncertainty of them uh, these are long-term arrangements in many cases you know you're, you're fixed for a long period of time so you want to make sure that you know both the general partner fulfills its obligations as a fiduciary and limited partners also feel that they have um, a general partner who is uh, fair, clear, um, and transparent. Whereas fairness opinions used to be called for primarily by the GP, this is changing. Here's John Rife again. I guess the other thing that, that, that I've seen emerge is, you know, historically it was really the GPs who wanted to get fairness opinions because they, they were nervous about the conflicted nature of these transactions and they wanted some independent confirmation in addition to the bid process that they'd already run, that the, the deal was being done at a price that was fair and reasonable. Increasingly, I actually see LPAC members asking for um, fairness opinions, because I think the LPAC is ultimately typically being asked to waive the conflict in connection with these transactions. And I think increasingly, it's really the LPAC, who, who particularly in Europe, is driving the, the, the requirement that there be a fairness opinion in connection with the transaction so that they have some independent basis for, 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 for feeling that the conflict is waivable. And, it, and it's, it, it goes to the whole nature of the LPAC. I mean, they're increasingly wanting to be advised. They want their own sets of lawyers. They want the fairness opinion. You know, I mean, because these deals, you know, they, they feel that they're exposed. They're being asked to say, mm. I mean, I think most LPACs hate it when they're asked to approve a transaction because they're like, that's not what I'm doing. Um, yeah. What they're actually doing is waiving the conflict in connection with the transaction in accordance with the partnership agreement. And if you use those words, it'd be much happier uh, than if you use the words, approve the transaction, because uh, that, that's not what they're doing. In Joshi's view. An LP calling for a fairness opinion can lead to resistance from GP. We, we've certainly represented a number of investors, as John has mentioned, that where you are very uh, keen to make sure that you're, you're getting disclosure and transparency and you have a right to ask for valuations. And quite often what we ask for is the right to refer to an independent appraiser if we, we, we don't agree with the valuation that they've put forward. Um, and in some cases, in some instances, we've had some pushback from general partners to say, well, we're willing to um, uh, obtain a valuation, but if, you, if uh, the valuation has to be you know, determined and is binding on you, but we're not going to give you any other right or role to object to that. Do they see it as an attack on their integrity or something? No, that you... I don't think it's that. I, mean, I think they want to be clear about what they're being asked for and what the parameters are. You know, yes, we can get a fairness opinion, but that could mean a whole bunch of things. A fairness opinion sort of says, this is a reasonable price. It doesn't say, this is the right price. 
Um, you know, is it that, you know, if it hasn't been an intermediate deal and it hasn't been a bid process, you do suddenly they want you to go out and put it put it into market, which isn't very practical. So it's about sort of trying not to derail the deal at the same time as making sure they're comfortable that the parameters around which people are working, I mean, are are the correct ones. And it's who's the right valuation. I mean, if it's a particular sort of asset, you might find that whatever valuation agent you choose um, may not have to be sufficiently expert in the sorts of things that you own. So you have to kind of balance that all out. So I don't think it's feeling attacked or feeling that the pricing is wrong. It's more of wanting to make sure that everyone is very clear on their parameters and that if you get the fairness opinion, for example, they can't say, I didn't like that one, can we get another one? Because I mean, they're not cheap. There's enough execution risk as it is. Rife says. And because the way that these transactions tend to price is by reference to the fund's NAV as at some specific date, as time goes by, there's, you know, every day the chance that the NAV is changing. And therefore, where the pricing was in terms of the historic NAV date could end up being out of step with where the portfolio is at the time that the transaction is closing. And so I think that where GPs are a little bit reluctant to introduce, you know, a third-party appraisal process or a fairness opinion process is not so much because they're concerned that the the, the outcome of that process is going to be that the price of the transaction is unfair, because frankly, I haven't ever seen a fairness opinion that said the the auction process that's been run has produced a price that's not fair. I think every time I've seen a fairness opinion, it, it has confirmed the fairness of the price, but but they take a while. They require the, the, the valuer to dig into the underlying assets, run a valuation process. And so in a transaction where, you know, really you have no idea if you have a deal until you've sent your election materials out you've waited your 20 business days and you've heard back from your LPs, anything that's just delaying your ability to get to that point where you're sending the election materials out, I think is increasing the execution uncertainty, which is making the b both the buyer and the sponsor, and frankly, LPs who want liquidity, everybody's nervous about that. There is, or certainly was, a widely held view that stapled commitments tend to be dilutive to the price of the secondary. There's no reason why this should be so, Simpson says. And I think even, I mean, I sort of feel that, you know, just to get, bring it back, I guess, to the stapled element, you know, if there's a stapled element, it's, it's just exactly the same picture because it is important that the pricing for the deal that isn't related to the staple is, is sound pricing and not somehow affected by the staple. That's actually very, very important, you know, to, to not be dilutive to... The, the existing LPs and, and, and to be clear, but to be clear that there is a staple so that everyone understands the basis on which the deal's being done. Well, and I also think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the two different types of GP-led processes because in a, in a LP interest tender offer, if, if, a, if an LP doesn't like the price, they can just not sell. Mm -hmm. And that, then they, everything really is just the status quo. They continue in the fund as an LP, as they always have. And, exactly. And, and they can then turn around and access a very active secondaries market to look to sell their interest for a better price. Where in a fund restructuring transaction, the default position is you get cash. And so in, in that type of transaction where, you know, it's totally conceivable that an LP likes the underlying assets but doesn't have the appetite or the internal flexibility to commit to a new vehicle for another five or seven years. And in that situation where because of that sort of constraint on the LP, their only option is to take the cash, I think there is a lot more pressure to confirm that the price for that transaction is at least fair. 
be part of their, their due diligence process when they're reviewing a transaction like that. But I also have not seen a, a situation where you've been forced or coerced into accepting the terms of the, the staple, really. And I think um, it is very much about uh, the, the limited partners making their own decisions for that particular transaction. Um, and they should be able to vote with their feet. Buyers that do these deals are very sophisticated because they are actually really complex deals, irrespective of the quantum. They are, they're, they're complex deals with lots of moving parts, and the people that do these deals are very sophisticated, and so they, they understand all the parameters around it as well, and they want, again, speaking to the execution risk point, you know, they want to make sure this deal goes through, and so they're trying... I don't... I think it's... I think there's sort of maybe a perception that these deals are somehow designed to be unfair, most specifically to the existing investors, and... I've yet to do one where I felt that that was anyone's intention, that they weren't just trying to get a deal that meant the people here could say, I've been in this fund for 12 years and I would like my money and here's some here's money, um, and that the GP remains you know, incentivized to manage out some assets that actually still have some potential for upside, and the, the new buyer gets a, a deal that they're comfortable with. This perception of unfairness stems, to some extent, for the interest the SEC showed in staple deals back in 2015. In the view of John Reif, things have changed since. What I think has happened since, since the SEC started focusing on these transactions is the industry has done a very good job of thinking very critically about how are we structuring these transactions? Are we making sure that the transaction is not structured in a way that is coercive to anybody? And are we making sure that in an asset deal, we are, to the maximum extent possible, giving LPs who want to roll with the asset a real status quo option, unless the status quo option is actually worse from the existing LPs' perspective than, than starting over. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's right. I think, you know, I think as ever, the, the maybe the U.S. side of these transactions is more mature than the European side. So they, yeah, and, and we sort of are kind of following into that. I mean, I think status quo option is probably offered maybe less in the US than it is, is in Europe, and we might move in that direction. But again, that's all designed to say, you know, as John said, it's like we're trying to get everyone to the right point that they, they want to be at. Um, I mean, and I say the SEC looked at it. The FCA haven't focused on it that I'm aware of. Um, they obviously care about conflicts quite a lot, but they're not uh, lasering in on this. Um, ILPA have started to look at um, the restructures specifically, and you know, they are there to protect both those institutions are there to protect investors and I guess the broader the broader integrity of the market um, but I, th I think the attitudes are, are changing because as John says the GPS and the buyers have tried very hard to make that work and to be transparent and to, to ensure everything is is fair well I, and I actually think that the the secondaries buyers have done probably the most to to force GPS to to really be at the top of their game in terms of disclosure around these transactions, the transparency with which they're being executed because you know we keep talking about execution risk. The only thing that's worse than the deal falling over before it's been done is the risk that the deal falls apart after it's been done. yeah. And it, I think that, that's right. That, that, that is much, much worse. And I think also because now these deals are being done by strong top-end GPs and with, with really strong buyers rather than maybe more compromised or distressed GPs where there is a much harder play because, in, as, as we were saying, that, that pricing is going to be probably below now for the, those sort of 
distressed people and that's much much harder to get a balance particularly if you're coupling it with a staple whereas when strong gps where the pricing is really at or around nav it's much more it's, it's a much easier deal to understand and, and to get get uncomfortable with and I think we're going to see going forward a lot more of these kinds of transactions coming through. And I think gone are the days when they used to be, uh, as Kate mentioned, just there for the, the distressed general partner. Um, I think as the secondary market is absolutely booming, we are going to see far more transactions, sort of top quarter GPs doing these deals, very good uh, high quality um, uh, buyers coming along as well. So I, I definitely think these are, the, the, these are here to stay. And a broader church of buyers. It's because it's more than the fund of funds now. It's the big sovereigns. And, you know, I did one, I think, where it was actually a pension fund was, was, was buying. So there are, there are way more people interested in these deals. So I think, as Tony says, they're not really, they're not going anywhere. And they're only going to get more, I think, m- more creative because there's so much money, as John was saying, they've got to spend it. And you can't just spend that on portfolio sales all the time. That, again, was Kate Simpson, along with John Rife and Saloni Joshi. If you want to hear more episodes of the Spotlight podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and across PEI Media's various titles online. For Secondaries Investor, I'm Rod James, and thanks for listening.